Part eleven of Volume two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Aristides, Part four. After this there was a general assembly of the Hellenes, at which Aristides proposed a decree to the effect that deputies and delegates from all Hellas convene at Plataea every year, and that every fourth year festival games of deliverance be celebrated, the Eleuthera, also that a confederate Hellenic force be levied, consisting of ten thousand shield, one thousand horse, and one hundred ships, to prosecute the war against the barbarians also that the Plataeans be set apart as invaluable and consecrate, that they might sacrifice to Zeus the deliverer in behalf of Hellas. These propositions were ratified, and the Plataeans undertook to make funeral offerings annually for the Hellenes who had fallen in battle, and lay buried there. And this they do yet unto this day, after the following manner. On the sixteenth of the month, Memacterion, which is the Boshan Alalcomenius, they celebrate a procession. This is led forth at the break of day, by a trumpeter sounding the signal for battle. Wagons follow filled with myrtle wreaths. Then comes a black bull. Then free-born youths carrying libations of wine and milk in jars, and pitchers of oil and myrrh. No slave may put a hand to any part of that ministration, because the men thus honored died for freedom. And following all, the chief magistrate of Plataea, who may not at other times touch iron or put on any other raiment than white, at this time is robed in a purple tunic, carries on high a water-jar from the city's archive-chamber, and proceeds, sword in hand, through the midst of the city to the graves. There he takes water from the sacred spring, washes off with his own hands the gravestones, and anoints them with myrrh. Then he slaughters the bull at the funeral pyre, and with prayers to Zeus and Hermes terrestrial, summons the brave men who died for Hellas to come to the banquet, and its copious draughts of blood. Next he mixes a mixer of wine, drinks, and then pours a libation from it, saying these words, I drink to the men who died for the freedom of the Hellenes. These rites, I say, are observed by the Plataeans down to this very day. After the Athenians had returned to their own city, Aristides saw that they desired to receive the more popular form of government. He thought the people worthy of consideration because of its sturdy valor, and he saw also that it was no longer easy to be forced out of its desires, since it was powerful in arms and greatly elated by its victories. So he introduced a decree that the administration of the city be the privilege of all classes, and that the archons be chosen from all the Athenians. Themistocles once declared to the people that he had devised a certain measure which could not be revealed to them, though it would be helpful and salutary for the city, and they ordered that Aristides alone should hear what it was and pass judgment on it. So Themistocles told Aristides that his purpose was to burn the naval station of the confederate Hellenes, for that in this way the Athenians would be greatest and lords of all. Then Aristides came before the people and said of the deed which Themistocles purposed to do, that none other could be more advantageous, and none more unjust. On hearing this, the Athenians ordained that Themistocles cease from his purpose. So fond of justice was the people, and so loyal and true to the people was Aristides. When he was sent out as general along with Simon to prosecute the war, 
and saw that Pausanias and the other Spartan commanders were offensive and severe to the allies, he made his own intercourse with them gentle and humane, and induced Simon to be on easy terms with them, and to take an actual part in their campaigns, so that, before the Lacedaemonians were aware, not by means of hoplites or ships or horsemen, but by tact and diplomacy, he had stripped them of the leadership. For, well disposed as the Hellenes were toward the Athenians on account of the justice of Aristides, and the reasonableness of Simon, they were made to long for their supremacy still more by the rapacity of Pausanias and his severity. The commanders of the allies ever met with angry harshness at the hands of Pausanias, and the common men he punished with stripes, or by compelling them to stand all day long with an iron anchor on their shoulders. No one could get bedding or fodder or go down to a spring for water before the Spartans. Nay, their servants, armed with goads, would drive away such as approached. On these grounds Aristides once had it in mind to chid and admonish them, but Pausanias scowled, said he was busy, and would not listen. Subsequently the captains and generals of the Hellenes, and especially the Chians, Samians, and Lesbians, came to Aristides and tried to persuade him to assume the leadership, and bring over to his support the allies, who had long wanted to be rid of the Spartans, and to range themselves anew on the side of the Athenians. He replied that he saw the urgency and the justice of what they proposed, but that to establish Athenian confidence in them some overt act was needed, the doing of which would make it impossible for the multitude to change their allegiance back again. So Uliades the Samian and Antigorus the Chian conspired together, and ran down the trireme of Pausanias off Byzantium, closing in on both sides of it as it was putting out before the line. When Pausanias saw what they had done, he sprang up and wrathfully threatened to show the world, in a little while, that these men had run down not so much his ship as their own native cities. But they bade him be gone, and be grateful to the fortune which fought in his favorite Plataea. It was because the Hellenes still stood in awe of this, they said, that they did not punish him as he deserved. And finally they went off and joined the Athenians. Then indeed was the lofty wisdom of the Spartans made manifest in a wonderful way. When they saw that their commanders were corrupted by the great powers entrusted to them, they voluntarily abandoned the leadership and ceased sending out generals for the war, choosing rather to have their citizens discreet and true to their ancestral customs, than to have the sway over all Hellas. The Hellenes used to pay a sort of contribution for the war, even while the Lacedaemonians had the leadership, but now they wished to be assessed equably city by city. So they asked the Athenians for Aristides, and commissioned him to inspect their several territories and revenues, and then to fix the assessments according to each member's worth and ability to pay. And yet, though he became master of such power, and though after a fashion Hellas put all her property in his sole hands, poor as he was when he went forth on this mission, he came back from it poorer still, and he made his assessments of money not only with purity and justice, but also to the grateful satisfaction and convenience of all concerned. Indeed, as men of old hymned the praises of the age of Cronus, the golden age, so did the allies of the Athenians praise the tariff of Aristides, calling it a kind of blessed happening for Hellas, especially as, after a short time, it was doubled, and then again trebled. For the tax which Aristides laid amounted to four hundred and sixty talents only, but Pericles must have added almost a third to this, since Thucydides says that when the war began the Athenians had a revenue of six hundred talents from their allies. And after the death of Pericles the demagogues enlarged it little by little, 
and at last brought the sum total up to thirteen hundred talents, not so much because the war, by reason of its length and vicissitudes, became extravagantly expensive, as because they themselves led the people off into distribution of the public monies for spectacular entertainments, and for the erection of images and sanctuaries. So then Aristides had a great and admirable name for his adjustment of the revenues. But Themistocles is said to have ridiculed him, claiming that the praise he got therefore was not fit for a man, but rather for a mere money-wallet. He came off second best, however, in this retort upon the plain speech of Aristides, who had remarked, when Themistocles once declared to him the opinion that the greatest excellence in a general was the anticipation of the plans of his enemies, that is indeed needful, Themistocles, but the honourable thing, and that which makes the real general, is his mastery over his fingers. Aristides did, indeed, bind the Hellenes by an oath, and took oath himself for the Athenians, to mark his imprecations casting iron ingots into the sea. But afterwards, when circumstances forsooth compelled a more strenuous sway, he bade the Athenians lay the perjury to his own charge, and turn events to their own advantage. And in general, as Theophrastus tells us, while the man was strictly just in his private relations to his fellow-citizens, in public matters he often acted in accordance with the policy which his country had adopted, feeling that this required much actual injustice. For instance, he says that when the question of removing the monies of the Confederacy from Delos to Athens, contrary to the compacts, was being debated, and even the Samians proposed it, Aristides declared that it was unjust, but advantageous. And yet, although he at last established his city in its sway over so many men, he himself abode by his poverty, and continued to be no less content with the reputation he got from being a poor man than with that based on his trophies of victory. This is clear from the following story. Callius the torch-bearer was a kinsman of his. This man was prosecuted by his enemies on a capital charge, and after they had brought only moderate accusations against him within the scope of their indictment, they went outside of it and appealed to the judges as follows. You know how Aristides, son of Lysimachus, they said, how he is admired in Hellas. What do you suppose his domestic circumstances are when you see him entering the public assembly, in such a scanty cloak as that? Is it not likely that a man who shivers in public goes hungry at home, and is straitened for the other necessaries of life? Callias, however, who is the richest man of Athens, and his cousin at that, allows him to suffer want with his wife and children, though he has often had service of the man, and many times reaped advantage from his influence with you. But Callias, seeing that his judges were very turbulent at this charge, and bitterly disposed toward him, summoned Aristides, and demanded his testimony before the judges, that though often proffered aid from him, and importuned to accept it, he had refused it, with the answer that it more became him to be proud of his poverty than Callias of his wealth for many were to be seen who use wealth well or ill, but it was not easy to find a man who endured poverty with a noble spirit, and those only should be ashamed of poverty who could not be otherwise than poor. When Aristides had borne this witness for Callias, there was no one of his hearers who did not go home preferring to be poor, with Aristides, rather than to be rich, with Callias. This, at any rate, is the story told by Aeschines the Socratic, and Plato maintains that of all those who had great names and reputations at Athens, this man alone was worthy of regard. Themistocles, he says, and Simon and Pericles, filled the city with porches and monies and no end of nonsense, but Aristides squared his politics with virtue. 
There are also strong proofs of his reasonableness to be seen in his treatment of Themistocles. This man he had found to be his foe during almost all his public service, and it was through this man that he was ostracized. But when Themistocles was in the same plight, and was under accusation before the city, Aristides remembered no evil. Nay, though Alcmion and Simon and many others denounced and persecuted the man, Aristides alone did and said no meanness, nor did he take any advantage of his enemy's misfortune, just as formerly he did not grudge him his prosperity. As touching the death of Aristides, some say he died in Pontus, on expedition in the public service, others at Athens of old age, honoured and admired by his countrymen. But Cateris the Macedonian tells something like this about the death of the man. After the exile of Themistocles, he says, the people waxed wanton, as it were, and produced a great crop of sycophants, who hounded down the noblest and most influential of men, and subjected them to the malice of the multitude, now exalted with its prosperity and power. Among these, he says, that Aristides also was convicted of bribery, on prosecution of Diophantus of the Deme Amphitrope, for having taken money from the Ionians when he was regulating the tributes, and further, that being unable to pay the judgment, which was fifty minas, he sailed away and died somewhere in Ionia. But Craterus furnishes no documentary proof of this, no judgment of the court, no decree of indictment, although he is wont to record such things with all due fullness, and to adduce his authorities. All the rest, as I may venture to say, all who rehearse the shortcomings of the people in dealing with their leaders, compile and descant upon the exile of Themistocles, the imprisonment of Miltiades, the fine of Pericles, the death of Pacchus in the courtroom, he slew himself on the rostrum when he saw that he was convicted, and many such a case, and they put into the list the ostracism of Aristides, but of such a condemnation as this for bribery they make no mention whatsoever. Moreover, his tomb is pointed out at Phalerum, and they say that the city constructed it for him, since he did not leave even enough to pay for his funeral. And they tell how his daughters were married from the Prytaneum at the public cost, the city bestowing the dowry for the marriage and voting outright three thousand drachmas to each daughter, while to Lysimachus, his son, the people gave one hundred minas in silver, as many acres of vineyard land, and besides this a pension of four drachmas per diem, all in a bill which was brought in by Alcibiades. And further, Lysimachus left a daughter, Polycrite, according to Callisthenes, and the people voted for her a public maintenance, in the style of their Olympic victors. Again Demetrius the Phalerian, Hieronymus the Rhodian, Aristoxenus the musician, and Aristotle, provided in the book On Nobility of Birth, is to be ranked among the genuine works of Aristotle, relate that Myrto, the granddaughter of Aristides, lived in wedlock with Socrates the sage. He had another woman to wife, but took this one up because her poverty kept her a widow, and she lacked the necessaries of life. To these, however, Panaetius, in his work on Socrates, has made sufficient reply. And the Phalerian says, in his Socrates, that he remembers a grandson of Aristides, Lysimachus, a very poor man, who made his own living by means of a sort of dream-interpreting tablet, his seat being near the so-called Lycaeum. To this man's mother and to her sister, Demetrius persuaded the people to give, by formal decree, a pension of three obols per diem, though afterwards, in his capacity of sole legislator, he himself, as he says, assigned a drachma instead of three obols to each of the women. 
it is not to be wondered at that the people took such thought for families in the city, since on learning that the granddaughter of Aristogaiton was living humbly in Lemnos, unmarried because of her poverty, they brought her back to Athens, consorted her with a well-born man, and gave her the estate in Potamus for her dowry. For such humanity and benevolence, of which the city still gives illustrious examples even in my own day, she is justly admired and lauded. End of section 11